Hello, my name is Elizabeth Klink, and I'm delighted to be part of Industry Insights, the EFM podcast being presented by the European Film Market of the Berlinale. This season of Industry Insights, the EFM podcast, puts a spotlight on highly topical and trend-setting industry issues, creating a compass for the forthcoming film year. The year-round podcast is produced in cooperation with the Goethe Institute and is co-funded by Creative Europe Media. This year, EFM is proud to announce that its ever-popular archive market will be taking place on Tuesday, February 20th from 11 to 5 p.m. as part of the European Film Market. This year, as was last year, it will be located at the Documentation Centre for Displacement, Expulsion and Reconciliation. This building is very close to the EFM Centre in the Martin Gropius Bau. And last year, it was the premiere of the event in this location. And as the European film market is constantly growing, there was need for a bit more space for the archive market. Our first guest, Monica Preischel, has worked for many years as an archive producer for documentary and fictional productions worldwide. In 2019, she was honored with the Focal Award for her work on Kuhlenkampf's Schuhe and in 2023 for Gladbeck. She is the chairwoman of the newly founded professional association, GRAP, which represents the interests of German archive researchers and archive producers in touch with both broadcasters and producers. Finally, she is working on the documentary Riefenstahl since 2018, and that's dedication. I also want to talk a little bit about some of the work that she's done in putting together this archive market. Without her, this market would probably not happen. So, Monica, thank you for that. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how it started and where the idea came from and where we're going with the Archive Day and the Archive Market? Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth, <laughs> for this wonderful introduction. So thanks that we can share a little bit our work. You also as an international archive producer based in Canada. And, you know, we were always looking at your association. You are like, you know, someone where we also shared all this information about that uh, we could like um, collect a little bit uh, of uh, skills of uh, uh, colleagues and whatever and focus on our work and um, so I, I think I started in 2018 to talk with uh, the first person at the European film market that about the idea of setting up an archive market because it's very important that we have a really an, an, uh, a place to meet for networking uh, to come together and also talk about uh, the needs of of productions, of producers, of archives as well. 
So it would be a good a good challenge uh, to set this up. So uh, in the end, we started the first edition in 2020. And I think it was the last huge event in Germany <laughs> before Corona take over. Uh, but it was successful and we were so full of uh, joy. And uh, yeah, everyone was like, yeah, this is the starting point. So yeah, then came uh, like a long distance walk uh, uh, with hybrid or online meetings only, but we, we still kept this idea. And so last year we could like have the like the second edition of the uh, really on-site market. This year we have around 18 exhibitors and uh, we also set up a really, really interesting talk program. So we have uh, like we call it coffee talks in the afternoon starting at 2 p.m. And also what is really new this year is like our first edition of a big talk, a panel with international guests at 5 p.m. And we have guests like Andres Feil, so he's very well known as a documentary filmmaker, also for fiction films. I yeah, work with him together for many, many years and also uh, on the project Riefenstahl, as you mentioned. Um, it's a very special topic and it's a workshop talk, so it's still in production, so it's very interesting. It's still, we are still in production and uh, hopefully we are finishing soon and where I'm very happy about, we um, have the director on the stage, uh, Faranas Sharifi. She is an Iranian filmmaker and she uh, has a world premiere on uh, Wednesday 21st with her film Stolen Planet and she has um, also made a film about, uh, let's say, archived memories, I would say. And um, so, um, and also myself, I will be on the stage a little bit presenting the archive producer's view on that. So we have like, um, yeah, I think a really interesting day. Wonderful. And and the the workshop is always uh, such a, a well-attended and well-loved program because it's one of the rare opportunities that archive producers and uh, directors and editors get to really kind of dig deep and find out how do these things get made and how what's the best way to work with one another. And so by having the directors and archive producer on the same stage, I always think that people learn a great deal. There's also the speed dating with some of the members from GRAP that will be part of the day. And I also know that there's going to be a, a, a wonderful announcement from the Bundesarchiv and, and uh, finishing up with a, a lovely happy hour. So it's a full day. Um, I'm very excited. It, again, that will be on Tuesday, February the 20th. And I can't wait to see all of you in person again. We did do a good job keeping it online for those two years. And I'm so delighted that EFM has been such a support for archives in general and archives specifically with some of the panels that they've produced. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what were some of your challenges last year and maybe the last couple of years um, in terms of the association and also fighting for some of the the accreditation, for example, or, or just networking. What were some of the things that you participated in last year? 
Yes, I, th I think that we had in the last years, let's say, as archive producer, um, really to fight with, um, at least that with a, uh, to be visible, you know, <laughs> not only to tell people about what is a profession archive producer, I, I still have to explain, so I'm not working uh, as an archivist. I mean, maybe sometimes I do, but not. <laughs> I'm not uh, especially working in one specific archive or for an archive. Um, so what is an archive producer doing? And uh, still, I think we are, uh, we have to translate and transmit. Yeah, and so the transmission <laughs> is a huge topic. <laughs> and um, also that I see that in the last years, the... Um, Maybe the directors become younger, yes, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes a bit uh, less experienced. Uh, also, maybe some production companies. I see that they maybe shrink, you know, in all their having s not not the same stuff uh, as, or employees than maybe um, before Corona. Sometimes I'm working with production where there is only one person or two persons. So uh, we overtake more and more, uh, let's say, also part of the work of uh, producers or from, you know, uh, let's say previous what the production what was the production work on their side. So it's becomes more and more complex in a way yeah so we are not only researchers we are not only researching we're sometimes working also in the part of development so we bring in our ideas or maybe also we have some ideas where to find like personal archives or uh, material which is like you know not in that um, let's say uh, commercial commercial archives to be found and um, so we are also working a lot uh, and I think this is something there is a big increase in the right clearance um, I, I see that most of the productions are searching for this you know to feel safe or you know no one wants to have an Big, uh, big or bad surprise during the editing and uh, if you have finished the production that you have still this risk uh, you know keeping that risk um, so and working with archive that always means to be a little bit flexible also to have a, like a risk management and uh, estimation of what can happen and I think what uh, what we have as archive producers where we work all the time you know with uh, this kind of material we have a lot of experience and we can really share this uh, like from the beginning so I, I would say also when I'm teaching um, giving seminars or workshops uh, this is something maybe before you go for financing or let's say uh, if you apply with your project at um, broadcasters or streamers or whatever that you really a bit uh, think about you know what what you're gonna plan what wh what are the archives what are the sources yeah I mean we still fight <laughs> for working with sources um, maybe the the topic AI will also come up and we are we as uh, like me and also my colleagues we are looking a little bit like with a uh, happy eye and a <laughs> sad eye on that. 
We don't know how this will change all the material which is around digital. Still archives who are not accessible are a bit protected. But this is like the thing we are also working on that archives get accessible and um, that it lowers the borders. So still there's a lot to do. And I see that uh, we there's a really big need for getting together in person and talk with archives, talk with producers, bring all these levels together. And this is a great opportunity for yeah, having the archive market. Thank you, Monica, for all of those excellent points you've made. I know it's a challenge at the moment, and there's a lot of things that your organization has been working on, but I'd like to bring it around to a more personal opinion from you, if I may. Um, what would be your personal wish for archive producing and archive researching in Germany and with for your group? Is there something that you'd like to see change or happen or develop? Still, I think a, a huge personal wishes that we are visible, that we are, uh, as archive producers, are seen and noticed. Also, I'm very happy that we uh, can now get our accreditation at uh, Berlinale and the EFM as our in our profession. It was also a huge challenge. And But beside of that, um, I'm also working on a specific topic where I think that we have in Germany a very special responsibility um, because, you know, we keep that material of Nazi propaganda material in the archives and we are always asked as uh, specialists on that. And I see that um, uh, people making profit out of that and I, I, I think that should not be done like that. Um, we have a ethic moral um, responsibility on that. So I'm, I'm a bit working on that, that it's accessible on the one side, but we have to be very careful with that material and it should be usable and it should be not in private hands. You know, if you see maybe sometimes material, amateur material uh, with a crime scene or so, I mean, should that should be someone make profit out of that? I don't think so. So it's a huge topic and I still hope that I find people who are working with me on that. And yes, that's something I it's may, maybe a personal challenge <laughs> for me. And what an, what an honorable one. Uh, I know that it's a very important one that is addressed within the archive community. And as you say, the public accessibility is something that I think we're always grappling with. And I'm delighted to hear that this is something that you're working on. And I know if you're working on it, there will be change happening. Um, I also wanted to just find out what your outlook is for next year and the years coming. Um, I know there's some changes at the Federal Archive, um, at the Bundesarchiv, that we're going to be hearing about on Archive Day. And there probably will be some new developments. But personally, what's what's ahead for you? I mean, I think also that in the film market, there is a change going on. Uh, I think already like last year, I, I see it in like my productions I'm working with. So less streamers, I would say. Um, not as much of this uh, doc heavy series are around. I also, we are also in contact with groups in, in, in the UK or in France 
Netherlands, and um, we see that it's uh, everything is connected, like to the world uh, economy in a way. Um, I personally work more at the moment for TV broadcasters or theatrical release. I mean. I love to go back to cinema, um, but let's see how it will change. I mean, also maybe a big challenge, but uh, still, I think as we are close to archives and that we, you know, search for archive-driven stories, um, that's, uh, yeah, something where we still work for and also that uh, people... Like, let's say, people who are talking about their experiences like in the Second World War. So they are all dead now. I mean, the last survivors are, you know, uh, <laughs> not available anymore. So how are we going to tell the story? So there is a change and we have to, you know, work all together on that. Absolutely. That's our some of our most important jobs are, is the preservation of the, of the storytelling and also making sure those stories are kept in front of, of the, today's audience and tomorrow's audience. I'm looking forward to speaking with um, our next guest, our producer, Marc Lepetit, Le and I, I thank you, Monica, for all of your insights and your continuing excellent work that you're doing as the chairwoman of GRAP, the German researchers and archive producers, and and all of the excellent work that you have done with the EFM to make the Archive Day happen. So thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm so delighted to have with us Marc Lepetit, who has been working as a producer since graduating from his studies at the very prestigious film academy, Baden-Württemberg. After moving to UFA Fiction, Mark worked as a producer for the multi-award winning event series Kudam and various feature-length films. Kill Your Darling was the first major transmedia project in Germany, produced in 2009. Other projects that Mark has been involved with are Hannelore Kohl, Die Erste Frau, Die Ungewollten, Die Irrfahrt der St. Louis, and most recently, Der Große Fake, Die Wirecard Story. In April 2021, Mark founded the UFA Documentary Department, which is responsible for non-fictional productions and hybrids under the UFA production umbrella. His first production included the RTL series Angela Merkel, Mrs. Mrs. Chancellor, and a project about Boris Herrmann. The four-part series Love is Everything about the Berlin band Rosenstolz was also one of the first highlights in 2021. In addition to being a very busy producer, Mark has been teaching as a guest lecturer at various universities throughout Europe since 2006. He is a lecturer in transmedia storytelling at the Zurich University of the Arts. I was delighted to see you, Mark, and delighted to have you here on our first podcast for the EFM Archive Market Day. You were at our Market Day last year in Berlin, and I just enjoyed speaking to you so much. So I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about um, some of the things we touched on. And one of the first things was, what is the access like now for you as a producer at UFA to some of the public broadcaster archives? Are you having any success? Well, it's it's good to be with you on the podcast, first of all, and thanks for inviting me. So it's it's even if we don't see each other now physically, it's it's nice to to listen to you guys and and talk. So I guess you know, th th honestly, it 
we were talking a lot about how complicated it got to, you know, have have constant and very clear deal terms with broadcasters if it comes to cooperation with streamers or with other broadcasters, that there is not a very clear line that makes everybody happy, including producers, archive producers and, and partners. Um, I think there had been a huge movement from all these archive owners um, that are not, you know, with public broadcasters to figure out business models that are working for producers. That makes it a little bit more easier. But talking about broadcasts, that it is, it's still, I remember that we made jokes of that, it f still feels a little bit like the Wild Wild West. Like if you're cooperating within broadcasters' worlds, Handshakes are easy, easily done. If you have a streamer who is giving away a contract and you ask a broadcaster if you can use material, it's still like, yeah, we'll figure something out and the numbers could be very high or if they're interested to, to find a good model, very low. But there is not yet um, a solid model that we can work with. And how would you say it is in terms of dealing with some of the private German archives that will be at the archive market in February? Yeah, we we started discussions in Cannes last year with Getty and and others, and the energy to become a partner in projects is very interesting because they don't see each other in just finding bits and pieces within the archive, AI and, and whatever they use makes them very, very successful and find almost everything. But they understand that there is a chance of cooperating and create unique and, and proper content out of their archives without including broadcast or streaming partners and make that a partnership where they could be kind of a silent co-production partner. And, and that's very interesting. And the, the, the energy in these discussions is just fascinating because they start to see each other as co-producers, not just archive boys and girls. And that's it's wonderful because they become quite embedded in the project and the ownership of their archive being used in co-production with a producer, I think, always brings a great energy, as you mentioned. Although there is one caveat, you need to have a certain amount of material to make something like this worthwhile. And that's a challenge that often ha comes up with producers. Is there enough in one particular archive to make a partnership worthwhile? And what do you think the tipping point would be for that? Um, thinking about that a lot, the discussions that we started, it was, was who, who is in charge, if you know what I mean. It's, it's about who has the idea. It doesn't make any sense to sit down and say, okay, do you have an idea? Because they are not at that point right now. If you bring an idea to the table, it's enormous what kind of sources and what kind of material could come of the, of, out of these discussions. But it doesn't make any sense to really see them as unique, creative production partners. They are still in the phase of figuring out what nuggets do they have in the basement and what is still yet not used. And, and it's our work as creatives to pinpoint ideas where they're like, oh, we have that in our library and we didn't find a way to use it. So probably hold it back and do something different to the point. And I met a producer from the US who focuses on using AI to really seek through every archive out there and saying, okay, his pitching situation is wholly different to what we do. He's approaching networks saying, I want to do a Tamim episode series about Egypt 
And the network is like, yes, let's do it. He doesn't have to shoot. He more or less just goes to the editing room, gets every material he can get from all the archives, and with that, he creates 10 episodes out of nothing. And this is where they are partnering up. So it's a, it's a wild situation right now, but very interesting for both archive producers, archive owners, and producers like, like Ufa. And it's a wonderful, as you say, there's so many co-ownerships that occur under some of these large archives that have access to not only material in their own country, but through um, other, other countries' materials as well. On a purely business level, how do you work it out in terms, is it a 50-50 deal or is it a 51-49? Or because in terms of the copyright, is it seen purely as half and half or do the producers generally retain a majority shareholder position? Um, from UFA side, we yet did not start to really figuring that out. We're still trying to find the right subjects that we focus on. Mm -hmm. But what I learned from, from that partner in the U.S., that's an interesting deal because he will ask them to come in as a real co-production partner. And the second where he is doing deal terms with a network or a broadcaster, he will share whatever comes in. So it's kind of a, there's a risk in the beginning, but if they're successful, they will probably make more money than they expect. And talking about Getty and others, they are interested in you know, inventing new business models besides saying, okay, you get the rights for 10 years, but saying if it's a su success, the amount of money that we can get out of that could be more interesting. We are still, um, I, I did last year, I did a series, series for, for Amazon called All or Nothing. We are still in the field of making overall 100% usage deals with partners and, you know, that business has been around for a while. They're not really interested in figuring out how much money they can make out of that. So it's still, it's growing. It's, 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 it's in the beginning. And I think what we, we've um, observed over the past four or five years, thankfully in part due to the pandemic, is there's a real appetite for material that's archive heavy. And archive is the main protagonist in the, in the documentary or in the series. And so this is a wonderful way for people to do more of a deep dive into a subject if they've already done, say, a 90-minute or a 75-minute project to then perhaps spin it out with access to this material into a four-part series or a six-part series. And I think that's, it's lots of potential and lots of interesting opportunities. You did mention the AI words, the initials, and um, I wanted to get a little bit of, of feedback from you just in terms of what your current position is on AI in terms of how you're working with material. And, um, you know, I always like to think there's the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we want to look at the good, but we also have to be... Uh, cognizant of the bad and perhaps even the ugly. So do you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us? Um, we tried, you know, the, the, the big thing is at what phase of your production are you going to use AI? I jumped into Firefly a couple of months ago. I've been to a presentation. If you don't know it, it it's the new Adobe tool, more or less to manipulate whatever is out there. It's really smart. It's really intuitive. Um, it's fascinating to see, but you're right. There is a little touch of the evil behind it. You know, even if they keep on saying during their presentations, everything you do is going through different phases of, is it real? Is it not real? Where does the material come? Do we own the rights? Blah, blah, blah. So what we do is we try to use AI mainly to, um, do a deeper dive into what's out there in the internet and out there in archives because um, some of these tools are 
smarter than the usual, let's Google something for sure. If it comes to post-production, it's a whole different game. The quality to improve old material that is in a bad shape, um, to work with it, to, to go into details. You remember how long it took when you went to the real old archives and then tried to find material and then you get it back and it's really not in a good shape. AI is of huge help if it comes to the quality of the picture, but also, and that is amazing, in the quality of the sound, which is sometimes in archive material even more important. If you want to, you know, find details, AI could be of a big help. Again, talking about deepfake, etc., etc., it's also dangerous, so we have to be quite sure and quite serious about if we use AI, what are the deal terms? What's what, what are we doing it there? Are we manipulating anything? And that's important. And I'm glad you mentioned sound because I've been party to a few pitches where they're talking about sampling the voices of some very famous um, filmmakers and famous um, political figures and then using that archival interview material to then help to produce the the narration for a film. And I know that there are some broadcasters who are not comfortable with that. And um, there's some countries where I don't think that's going to fly. Have you looked into doing that at all in your, in your company? Um, sometimes, you know, if you do an interview, we did a um, docufiction last year with Margot Friedländer, um, who is a 102-year-old Holocaust survivor. So once in a while, if you go through the interviews, you will recognize that the quality of the sounds needs improvement and that she kind of, because she has her problems in talking, so we help her by just improving her voice. It's easily be done with AI. We would never ever implement new words or change pauses. So if it comes to that kind of level, I guess AI could be of a help because it will just help sound engineers to improve to for us to understand what's been said because the quality as you know if you look at all these old speeches it's difficult to understand what they say you can push the audience a little bit back you get the the, the right speech in the front i think in that terms it's totally okay but if it really comes to manipulate i'm out honestly I know. Well, one of the one of the thoughts that was presented was taking letters and having the voice that has been sampled read those letters. And I thought, you know, that's a that's a difficult kind of situation because oftentimes things that are written don't have the same emphasis as when they're spoken, or it's open to interpretation or artistic interpretation. So there's lots to think and talk about. And I know the the AI panels at film festivals around the world in the coming years will be wonderfully informed and probably very well attended. So thank you for your, your insight because I know I knew you would be thinking about that. I wanted to ask you what some of your plans and goals are for not just 2024, but I know you think well ahead and in well into 2025. Do, do you have um, some projects that you're hoping will come to fruition? I, I don't want you to belie any confidences, but perhaps you can share the things that you can share and let us know what you're up to and what maybe some of the archival challenges in some of those projects that you're anticipating. Out of the stories that we told, you mentioned St. Louis, I mentioned Margot Friedlander, we do have still a huge need to tell German or European story in a different way. And this is what I love to emphasize. I, I love these stories 
but I'm not comfortable in retelling what happened over and over again. It needs to have a different angle. It needs to have a different character. It needs to have somebody who's really been involved. And so going through these archives, it's really, if our producers jump into that, they try to find personal, um, very close to a character stories that we would love to pick and tell the stories that we know around it, like we did with Margot. Margot, she she doesn't like if we say she hide, but she did hide somewhere in Berlin to get away for Gestapo. She doesn't like the work hiding, so um, hopefully she's not listening to that. Um, but she really, we had 20 days of interviews with her, and we read the book, and so we knew a lot about it, and we tried to retell what happened in between 40 and 45 in a different way. So I think this is going to be, for all the big broadcasters, a big issue to describe personal stories, not just from the from the Third Reich, but also going into the time in between 45 and 60, because this is still kind of in Germany and I guess in the UK, looking at a project like Lola opens up, you know, where they are in their storytelling. So we are not that far behind. So I guess it's interesting to find these kind of stories again, more personal, more character-driven than, and in 1990, Blas started this and that, and then going into linear storytelling. So it's really, if I would give a signal to archive producers, go into more personal stories than focusing on finding new material, how Hitler destroyed the world. We know that. It's been out there. Um, if it comes to contemporary, everybody loves music. Same problem. They are seeking for personal story you did zappa there's been a lot of story in it and you know it's been a kickoff and you went deeper and deeper in his character and found out what his energy's motor is and that's what the the, the streamers and the networks are looking for uh, very simple more character work less okay there's been an incident and let's go from this point to that point and fill in the linear time uh, escape. So it's it's really the personal story that we're looking for. So we we're doing that. We're going to do a huge story about one of these characters who's been in the circus business for forty years, and he's opening up his archive, which is enormous, and it's huge fun for archive producers to go there because it's I guess something like sixty thousand square meter of material. Wow. <laughs> so it's 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 just great. I hope to do um, a story about a very famous politician here in Germany whose energy comes from his father, who's been kind of a, a revolutionary guy back in the 50s. So you can tell his DNA from his father's size. You can, you know, use both of materials. There are so many projects. And again, I'm not going to put out too much information, but this is the way that we want to go, hopefully. And always storytelling and the story itself is the, the main thrust. And that's why your projects are so memorable and so well-produced. And Mark Le Petit from UFA Fiction and UFA, um, your new transmedia projects and also all of the factual work you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. And best of luck with your very interesting projects. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for your questions. Have a great day. Our next guest is Amanda Huntley, who is the Managing Director of Huntley Film Archives in the UK. For nearly 40 years, she has been working with their very unique collection and has a huge passion for celluloid and documentary history on film. Amanda works with production companies, broadcasters, museums, advertisements, and educational clients. 
She always aims for excellence, historical truth, and creativity in how her company's archive film assets are used. It's a wonderful knowledge for all of us to know that her film collections are being scanned to digital and are available to view on their very interesting interactive website. Huntley Film Archives has always been fiercely independent, and they aim to conserve, conserve and preserve their film collections by using the revenues they make from commercial sales. It's a point of honor that they do not receive any public funding for their restoration work, and yet they're able to maintain the highest standards. Amanda and her company promote film archive training through courses and through internships. And I always like to mention that one of her hobbies is breeding llamas. Uh, so, Amanda, it's wonderful to see you. You and I have known each other for many, many years, and you were always such a, a, a lodestar for me in the archive business because you did retain such integrity about the work that you do. And I was delighted to see that you were at the last year's EFM archive market. And um, what was that like to, to participate at the Berlin market last year for you? It, it was wonderful, Elizabeth. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I made lots of really useful contacts as well. Um, and I don't know, just to have an environment where you can talk archive all day is always a great pleasure. And I particularly love working with the German produ producers because I find they already come with a great understanding. I don't have to explain as much as I do in other um, shows that I do. Sometimes you have to sort of explain what an archive does and what sort of services we can offer. And I love the German shows because, particularly the sort of German archive producers, because they come with that understanding already. And um, maybe it's a cultural thing that um, Europe has a sort of deeper connection with the idea that film can be documentary, can be a way of showing life as it is and as it was, perhaps more than dare I say, the USA, where perhaps feature film is a more predominant style? I think it's true, and it was delightful to see the growth of the German Research Archive Producers Association, GRAP, and uh, I thought it was wonderful that people from outside of Germany were there to meet and greet some of their members who have a lot of expertise and have a lot of, of, of very interesting projects in their curriculum vitae. And as you say, just any opportunity to sit and chat about archives. And that's often when the best ideas come about because someone asks about your collection and then they might spark an idea. Did that happen last year? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, a bit like Mark's been talking about. Um, it's a matter of keeping up with the trends and the, the sort of zeitgeist around what people really want to watch. Uh, I mean, you already pointed out that archive has sort of continued as a trend, as a something that people really want to hear and and, pe and people really want to see. But how you form that narrative from the archive does change over the years. And we're finding that there's... Uh, you were talking earlier, I hope I'm not jumping in too soon, but we were talking earlier about AI. And I think the most interesting part of the whole question around AI for me as an archivist is surely somebody sits down to watch a program because they want to see the truth of the archives that they're looking at. And if we start replacing that with AI, doesn't it remove the purpose of that film almost at a fundamental level? So I'm a little confused myself as to where AI is going. But certainly at... at um, the archive market last year, we were talking about some of these issues and how it might affect all the way we work. 
It is. And as I know, you really do hold um, the veracity of your collection and the even your social media presence is always a delight to, to follow you on LinkedIn and different um, platforms because you bring a very interesting clip to everyone's attention. But there's the backstory is very well researched and well cataloged and captioned. And I think that's something that as an archive producer, we all appreciate when there's that time and care taken so that it is isn't just put up there quickly with not too much thought and not too much, um, as I say, backstory or information, because that really does help. Oh, my goodness, Elizabeth. Uh, I mean, you couldn't have really said that at a more pertinent moment, because we're really reanalyzing the amount of time and effort we do with our cataloguing. And it has been put to us that some people find it inaccessible, that that we're overloading with too much information. And We've begun to think that perhaps we should copy other archives model where you just use a certain number of key um, sort of pertinent keywords, really. So it's really interesting you should raise that particular topic because obviously it does kind of, it's quite labor intensive. It takes an enormous amount of effort to produce catalog entries the way that we do. But we do sometimes wonder whether it is a counterproductive thing in terms of commerciality, I suppose. Uh, I, I mean, I've always wanted to do things the best we can, but you do sometimes have to balance that about how much it costs to run the archive. I don't want to sound as if I'm being bleating about on about this, but you know it, we do have to weigh these these things up. And we've kind of this morning we're discussing whether we should abandon the way we're cataloging now because of that labour intensivity element. But if you're sitting there saying to me, <laughs> "This is what the producers love." In a way, it makes me reflect again, and maybe perhaps we shouldn't jump to that conclusion. Well, I guess it probably depends on the type of projects that people are coming to you about. If you're looking at something that's quite, um, you know, a deep dive into a certain topic, that kind of information is so invaluable as opposed to, you know, my famous story. I remember uh, trying to track down Winston Churchill when he came to visit FDR at the White House over Christmas during the war. And the keyword said, uh, man in bowler hat, smoke cigar in garden. And in fact, it was Winston Churchill. So, oh, God. I, I love detail and I love good uh, good background information, but I can also see where someone who's doing something that's quite, um, you know, they want a lot of information and a lot of, of, of um, not so detailed information, depending on their project, um, that that might be something that, that you do have to consider at some point, just as you say, for the commercial value of it. It's, it's a tough walk to walk, isn't it? It is a tough walk. And, you know, we, we do analyse the way we do things all the time. We do want to produce a really good service for producers, but sometimes we might misunderstand what they really need. And I think that might be a case in point. For example, on my website, you'll find the films as whole. You'll find whole films. You can run whole 20, 31, sometimes an hour long films and see the film as the filmmaker intended. But again, I'm beginning to doubt whether that's a good policy and perhaps I would be better clipping my films into smaller chunks. And I can see that that's not necessarily a bad thing because it it makes it accessible for people to get exactly what they want exactly in front of them. And producers, archive producers, are all sort of time-poor people. And if I'm making them trawl through a whole 20-minute film to get to the section they want, 
I have to wonder whether my policy has been a bit too protective of the original filmmaker and not necessarily quite right for the needs the producer now. It could be, too, that I, I often bring in entire films at the very early stages of a film before I'm actually bringing in clips, but just trying to get a sense of what other people have done and, and how people in different decades dealt with the story. So for me to be able to see the entire film is always a delight. And I often find great cutaways and things that maybe you wouldn't even expect or you wouldn't even be able to search with keywords, but you just happen to see them. And that's often sometimes like a little a gem in your edit. I, I want to just jump into one of your other hats that you wear so splendidly, and that is the work that you have done in terms of training the next generation of, of film archivists. And it's an intensive training. It's one that is world class. And tell us a little bit about how that came about and how it functions today. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we've been training and uh, in one way or another, probably almost since we started, which, as you pointed out, was 40 years ago now, which seems incredible, but true. Um, so from the very earliest days, we always had, I think we called them volunteers in those days, people that came in and helped us interpret our material. I mean, because we're such an eclectic archive and we have subjects that are so wide and so global and across so many um, decades... It means that in-house, I can't expect to have experts on all the subjects I'm looking at. So from the very beginning, we were bringing in people, have a look at our railway films, tell us what sort of train that is. Have a look at this war film, tell us who that general is. I mean, of course, it's a bit easier now because you look things up online. I remember the days when we had a room full of catalogues to help us do this, but also those expert people who knew the subject already and could look at a film and interpret and catalogue it for us very well. So that's kind of how we started. But over the years, we began to realise that the opportunities for young people to learn how to be a film archivist is incredibly rare. Even in the UK, we used to, many, many years ago, have um, official training at one of the universities. Now there's a scattering of places that you can go to learn to be a film archivist. And my goodness, the number of um, moving images that are available are surely going up, not down. And this would lead us to believe that we have to think about how those moving images are looked after in the future. I don't just mean the sort of romantic side of celluloid and 35mm, but also even the born digital. I mean, having good catalogers and people that know how to use that material well must be a concern to us. And I think having a training in how to do that should be a goal. It's a wonderful program that you offer. And as you mentioned, it's really not on the, the general programs for film studies in, in many countries. And it's something that I've always felt is a real need because in order to make sure we have, the, as I say, the next generation, and you've been educating many generations of, of great archivists, and um, I, I applaud you for doing that work because without them, our job would be much more difficult. And um, and as you say, the, every time we work with archives, we preserve it in our our own way by using it in other films. And I know when we work with good people in the archives who understand the technology and they understand the requirements in terms of formatting and timing and all those things, it just makes our job so much easier as archive producers. It does seem a shame to me that there are so many courses where you can do film studies and yet so little will even offer one session about how a film archive works. I, I wish I could change that. It would be lovely. It's true. I mean, we have a lot of cinematography and a lot of editing and a lot of writing courses. Um, I see that in, in every country that I go to. And I'm always amazed that there's such a 
there is not a profusion of good archive courses. So kudos to you for doing that. And that's, it's also something we try to do at the archive market at the, with the EFM in terms of having programs and interviews with different people who work on both sides of the desk, archive producers and also archives. And, um, and I know we're all going to look forward to seeing you in Berlin on the 20th of February. I know there'll be lots more of those great conversations where you can talk to producers about some of your very unique collection. It's a a collection unlike any other that I've ever seen or worked with. And so thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, here, Elizabeth. It's been wonderful. We'll really enjoy talking to you. Great. And we'll see you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'd like to say a final thank you to our speakers, Monica Preichel, Marc Lepetit, and Amanda Huntley, and to the entire team at the European Film Market. We look forward to welcoming you on Tuesday, February 20th at the EFM Archive Market. This season of Industry Insights has been produced in cooperation with the Goethe Institute and is co-funded by Creative Europe Media. Please do tune in to future episodes of Industry Insights. Find us wherever you find your podcasts and on the website of the European Film Market, www.efm-berlinale.de. Thank you very much for listening. It's been my pleasure. Goodbye.